0: Have been studying the Gospel of Mark. We are in chapter 8, and so I invite you to take your Bibles and be finding that chapter, and we will look at several verses here in a few moments. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but multiple studies continue to reveal that Americans don't think like we used to. I do not mean by that that we have changed our views on political or moral issues, though, of course. We certainly have. Neither do I mean that the various forms of dementia are hindering our ability, though again, that certainly does play a factor. But what I'm talking about when I say that we don't think like we used to is that we simply don't take the time to think like we used to. And because we don't take the time, in some some sense, we have lost the ability to think. People struggle today to tell the difference between a fact and someone's opinion. It's hard to distinguish between truth and propaganda, though of course we tend to believe that truth is found on the channel that we listen to or watch, and propaganda is on the other channel that other people watch. Logical thinking has given way to emotional responses that are given in sound bites, and sound bites are all we can handle anymore because our attention spans have grown shorter and shorter. So rather than think, we prefer to be entertained. That is why we spend most of our evenings flipping from one channel to another, looking for something to watch that will disengage our mind so that we do not have to think. Movies fulfill the same purpose as does music something some people have in the background or in their earbuds virtually all day long. They seemingly cannot stand the thought of silence, perhaps even wondering what their mind might say if nothing else is saying anything, and therefore they must have noise, they must have something going on at all times. And the problem escalates when we realize that earbuds not only pipe in music, but they prevent us from actually communicating with other people. We rode the metro or the tube, what we call the subway, when we were in Europe virtually every day, or I suppose we did every day, and the majority of people on those subways had earbuds in while they were looking at their phones. It was eerily silent on those trains, other than the screeching noise of the train, even though at times they were very crowded, but nobody was talking to anybody. I see the same phenomenon when I go to the gym. There's very little conversations in gyms anymore because everybody is listening to their music. And as a result, we don't have long and intimate conversations with others, preferring instead to voice our opinions online. And even then, when we do try to have conversations, we often can't handle ourselves and can't control our anger because someone else's opinion does not go along with ours, and therefore we neither listen nor learn. We have very little patience any longer with opposing viewpoints. After all, they're wrong. My view's right, and your view is wrong, so why should I take the time to listen and ultimately learn? The old adage is that you should not discuss in public neither religion nor politics. And if we cannot discuss religion or we simply do not want to, it is no wonder that we do not ask nor know how to answer when it is asked the deep questions of our faith. But when we transport ourselves back to the first century via Mark's gospel, we discover that Jesus is asking these questions and pondering these questions with His disciples. They are walking from place to place. The only other means of travel that we've seen so far is by boat when they're crossing the Sea of Galilee from one side to the other. But virtually everywhere they go, they are walking, and as they are walking, they are having conversations, conversations often centered around the miracles that Jesus has just performed or the things that He has just said. Last week from the beginning of Mark chapter 8, we looked at what I call the evolution of faith we began to see that the disciples were beginning to see. They were beginning to hear, that is, their mind and their eyes were beginning to be opened as is evidenced by the miracle in two stages of the man who was blind. The only miracle in the Gospels where Jesus performs something in stages. And He's done doing that to show us how the disciples initially had no sight spiritually Then they began to see in a blurry format, and finally they began to see clearly. This morning we are looking at not the evolution of faith, but we are looking at the explosion of faith because we've come to this high-water mark in the Gospel of Mark where Peter makes this tremendous confession, although we're going to see that though he explodes in faith along with the others… His faith is nowhere near mature. It has a long way to go, even as our own does. And so let's look at Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27, and think through these questions and conversations that Jesus is having with His disciples, Mark 8, 27. And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He asked His disciples, who do people say that I am. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, if you've been with us in the study, you know that primarily we have taken rather large blocks of material Really, for two reasons. Number one, they are often stories, which means we can deal with them more quickly. But number two, we've done so so that we do not bog down in the Gospel of Mark. But this morning and next time, we are indeed slowing down because we have reached some rather pivotal material for what it means to know Christ and to follow Christ. You may recall that Mark began his Gospel. By saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And yet from Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, where that statement is made, until Mark chapter 8, where Peter makes this confession that Jesus is the Christ, there has not been the mention of the title Christ in all of that material. We've not heard it since 1-1 until we hear it from the lips of Peter In fact, in the first half of Mark's gospel, no human being has confessed Jesus as divine. God himself did. You remember at the baptism, God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We've heard demons confess Christ. We've heard them say that Jesus is the Holy One of God or the Son of God. But no human being has confessed the divinity of Jesus Christ until it comes from the lips of Peter here in these verses. Everything prior to these verses has been pointing toward this moment. Everything after this confession of of Peter's of Christ will point forward to Jerusalem. That is why this is the, the pivotal point in the Gospel of Mark. Because from this point forward, we are turning toward Jerusalem where Jesus is going to tell them what is going to happen there, and He is going to meet and satisfy His divine person or purpose. And so we find here an explosion of faith from Peter and the other disciples. These men are on the move again. They are walking north. We were in Bethsaida last week. Now they are walking 25 miles north to a region known as Caesarea Philippi. And along the way, they are talking. This region of Caesarea Philippi is at the base of Mount Hermon. In fact, we stood there some time ago when we took a trip over there, and you could see the snow that was still on the tops of the mountains, though it was springtime by this time, testifying to the elevation of that mountain. It is very near the border of Syria. In fact, we saw the barbed wire that separated the two countries and the checkpoints that you had to go through in order to get to Syria. But surprisingly, no one on our bus wanted to get out and go to Syria. It is also at the mouth of the Jordan River. So all of this is the region of Caesarea Philippi, this region that is largely Gentile, though obviously there are some Jews there, but it is Gentile in nature, a region dominated by Roman associations, the kind of place where you would regularly hear, "'Caesar is Lord.'" An odd place indeed, given the fact that Jesus has been in Galilee for the vast majority of His ministry up until this point, an odd place indeed to hear for the very first time, you are the Christ. And so they are traveling, and Jesus asks them a question, what are people saying about me? Who do they think I am? Or from our perspective, we might put it this way, who is this man In fact, that's a question the disciples have no doubt been pondering all the way since chapter 4. They asked it there. They said, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey Him after He had calmed the storm? And they've been pondering that ever since. Normally, it was a disciple who asked the rabbi a question. That is how they learned. But here the roles are reversed, and the rabbi is asking the disciples, He is not asking the disciples this question as a marketing technique to help position himself for future success in his ministry. He is not asking this question seeking to gauge his public popularity so that he could position himself to rise in the polls in the future. Rather, he is asking this question specifically to jumpstart a conversation that is going to lead to the second question, which we will get to in just a few moments. So who is this man? Well, Peter gives him the answers that are popular at this particular time. Some were saying that he was John the Baptist. We've heard this before. You remember Herod? He is the one who had John the Baptist killed at the request of his wife through her daughter. And he had a guilty conscience. He knew that that John was not guilty of anything worthy of death, and yet he had him put to death nevertheless. And so his conscience is troubling him, and he believes that perhaps Jesus is John the Baptist come back. Of course, we know differently. We know John is the forerunner of Christ. We know John is the one who pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We know John as the man whom when his disciples came to him and said, more and more people are going to Jesus, what do you think about that? His ministry seems to be more successful than yours. John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. We know John is the one who baptized Jesus. So there is absolutely no way that Jesus is John come back. Their lives overlap. That's an impossibility. And so this first answer, though popular, is certainly not correct. The second answer to this question, who is this man? Well, some say he is Elijah. This no doubt stems from the fact that Elijah, an Old Testament prophet, did not die. He's one of those rare people Who didn't die? He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, leading to speculation that he might one day come back. And this speculation was was further enhanced by Malachi. In the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi prophesies that Elijah is going to come back before the coming of the Messiah. And so, for nearly 400 years, the Jews have been waiting for this prophecy to be fulfilled so that when Jesus steps foot onto this earth, They are looking for Elijah to come, and so some have concluded that Jesus must be Elijah. Again, we know that this is not true because Jesus himself said that John is the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy. The third popular answer was that he is simply one of the prophets, a more general answer, not getting specific about which prophet he might be, but he must be a prophet. After all, he cannot be a mere man. What with the teaching he's given that comes with authority, they've recognized that. What with the miracles and the healings that he's done, not to mention the exercising of numerous demons, this cannot be a man, therefore he must be some sort of prophet. Moses had said that God was going to raise up a prophet like him someday, so perhaps Jesus is the fulfillment of this ancient promise. Now, I do want you to see that all three of these prevalent and popular answers are positive. They all elevate Jesus to something that is more than a mere average man. But at the same time, they all misrepresent Him, giving Him only a preparatory role in the coming of the Messiah rather than being the Messiah Himself. But as I mentioned earlier, Jesus isn't primarily interested And what others are saying about Him, He's using this question to get to the second question, and so He turns to the disciples once again and He says, okay, guys, what about you? Who do you say that I am? It is much easier to share the opinions of the crowd, to merely repeat what others are saying rather than to have your own conviction to step out on faith in opposition to the crowd and come up with a different answer. Now, if we were to do a late-night talk show-style interview on the street in downtown Knoxville and ask people randomly on the street, what do you think about Jesus? Who is He? What kind of answers would we get today? Well, they would not say John the Baptist. We know that's not right. They would not say Elijah. Again, we know that's not right. They certainly might say that third answer, he is a prophet. In fact, this continues to be the Islamic answer to what is Jesus or who is Jesus. They believe him to be a prophet. They elevate him to the status of a prophet. However, they are quick to conclude that he is not the last and greatest prophet. They hold that title for Muhammad. I think we would hear people say that they believe Jesus to be a great moral example and teacher. He had some phenomenal things to say, some great advice. And not only did He give good advice, but He lived like it. That is, He had a good moral life. He is worthy of us listening to Him. He is worthy of us imitating Him. But none of that comes with any authority. That is, you don't have to, but it's certainly worth a look. Still, others might scoff at the very question and say, "'Who is Jesus? He does not exist.'" He is a figment of your imagination, a myth. He is one in a long line of religious hoaxes that people have leaned upon through the years in order to cope with life and death. But we are now contemporary. We have been enlightened for a very long time. We are intellectual. We do not need such crutches to lean on. Certainly some would conclude that Jesus is a path to God. That is, they would say, yes, I understand that some people find God through this man named Jesus, but you just need to understand that He is one path among many. This is the inclusive Jesus or what, what, what we might call the politically correct Jesus. If you find God through Jesus, wonderful. I'm glad it works for you. Congratulations. But He's not for everyone, and shame on you if you try to impose Him on everybody else, Because that's not your right. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion. And while everyone is indeed entitled to their own opinion, that does not mean, as society seems to be believing, that every opinion is equally valid or correct. The truth remains that there is truth. Some opinions about Jesus are right and others are wrong. So just because you have a personal opinion about Jesus does not make it correct. So speaking of correct, we've talked about popular answers, both in the first century and today. We've talked about politically correct answers and personal answers, but what we want to see now is the proper answer. What is the correct answer to who is this man? And I am confident that were we to ask these questions on the street, we would get this answer. I am equally confident that though we might get the answer repeatedly, some who give the answer would not understand the answer they give. And in fact, that's exactly what we see in Peter. He's going to give the right answer, but he doesn't understand what that answer is. And that is a prevalent problem that remains in our day, meaning that one can actually make a confession or profession of faith in Christ without actually grasping what it means. So Peter's response is this, you are the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. We tend to think that. Because we call him Jesus Christ, and because we have two names, I know we have a middle name, but we don't tend to use that, so we have two names primarily, and so we say, well, Jesus' name is Jesus Christ. But Christ is not a name, it is a title. It is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew or the Old Testament name Messiah, both of which mean anointed or anointed by God. So Peter is making a confession, a declaration, a declaration that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited for Messiah. And remember that as the leader of the disciples, He often does the speaking on their behalf. So it is not just Peter making this confession, but the rest of the disciples are making it as well, meaning that all of them are growing in their faith. They have finally had eyes that have opened enough to see and ears that have open enough to hear, and minds that are open enough to understand that the Messiah is indeed before them. And that's a huge leap from where they've been. Now, Matthew explains this statement much further. In other words, he gives more dialogue than Mark does. We've seen repeatedly that, that Mark is very brief in what he says. In Matthew's gospel, Peter says, you are the Christ, and then he adds the Son of the living God. I have a couple of pictures for you. This first picture is a close-up of the region of Caesarea Philippi where many believe this confession, this dialogue that we are examining this morning took place. And as you hopefully can see in this rock formation, there are are oval uh, indentions there. And in Jesus' day, those indentions would have been filled with various idols. On these ledges, all across this rock, and you'll see in a moment how big this is, but all along this rock in these ledges, there would have been uh, idols for this pagan, for these pagan people of Caesarea Philippi to flock to and worship. And with this as the background, Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the son of the living God with behind him all of these dead gods, who are no gods at all, in the crevices of this rock. And Jesus then replies that upon this rock, he is going to build his church. And this next picture shows the entirety, if I can get it all in there, of this rock. And you might even notice in the foreground there, you see some water. That's the beginnings of the Jordan River. And so this rock is a, is a huge rock formation in Caesarea Philippi. I, I think we tend to read this dialogue and we think they're walking along the way and Jesus sees a rock and he, as he so often does, takes nature and makes a spiritual truth out of it. And so he might pick up a little rock and say, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. But in all likelihood, this is where they were standing when he says to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now there's been a lot written through the years about what that means. It is not in Mark's gospel, so it is not our main focus, but the name Peter means stone. So Peter, I mean Jesus is making a play on words here and saying upon this large stone, this rock, I am going to build my church, the foundation with this massive visual in the background, is the statement that that Peter just made and that Jesus himself is the foundation of the church. He is the Messiah, the confession we must all make if we are to be a child of God and a member of his church. And yet, for the moment at least, Jesus then tells them not to say anything about it that messianic secret that we've seen throughout the gospel of Mark. Peter makes this tremendous confession, and then Jesus responds according to Matthew and says that God has revealed this to you, and this is the very foundation upon which I'm going to build the church. Now, don't say anything about it. We've talked about how odd that is throughout the gospel of Mark. In a few moments, we're going to see exactly why he's been saying this. Because while this confession that Peter makes is tremendous, and it is indeed correct, he does not even understand himself what he is saying. And again, likewise, there are many today who profess a correct faith. They will say, Jesus is Lord. They will say, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And yet, at the same time, they may have no clue as to what that means nor how it applies to their lives. And that is why the end of Mark chapter 8 is so critical to our lives, not just a correct confession of faith, but what that means for who the Messiah is and for us as we strive to follow Him. And so we move to the second question. I know there were two questions in the first. Who is this man? He is the Christ. But the second question is equally important. What kind of Christ is He? What kind of Messiah is this? And both of these questions must be answered correctly if we are to have explosive faith. It is not enough to say Jesus is Lord unless we understand what that means. It is not enough to acknowledge that He is the Messiah who the Jews had been waiting for unless we know what kind of Messiah He is. So from this moment forward, Jesus begins to teach the disciples about what lies ahead for Him and ultimately for them. And while it is common knowledge for us, at least for those of us who have been raised in church, over the next three chapters, He's going to predict His death and resurrection three times. And while that's common knowledge for many of us, and even those of us who were not raised in church, you probably have heard it at some point in your life. This was new information for the disciples. And it wasn't just new information, it was radical new information that they had never thought of before and went against everything they had thought of. When Jesus says in verse 31 that he is going to suffer and he is going to die and he is going to rise again, this is all new. A suffering Messiah? I realize we can go back to Isaiah 53 and there there are some tremendous statements from another prophet that tell us about the suffering Messiah who is to come. They had not made that same connection in the first century. They expected a victorious and ruling Messiah, one who would overthrow the Romans and at the same time elevate the Jews. Dying on a cross was for criminals and those who were cursed by God. It was not for the Messiah. And this is why, even to this day, the Jews do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah because He has not come as a ruling, conquering king, at least not yet, and He died on a cross, which to their minds means He was cursed by God. And all of this suffering, He says, will not come at the hands of wicked and evil men. I realize we can say they were, and that would be accurate, but follow me here. These were religious men. These were respected men. These were the epitome of what it meant in that day to live a righteous life, the religious leaders of the day. The elders did not refer to old men, it referred to the 70 lay members of the ruling council, made up of men from both groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who were both very religious and righteous, though they disagreed on some theological issues. The chief priest is plural there because it was not just the current chief priest, but it was his predecessors, along with some of their family members. And the scribes, we've encountered them before. These are the men who were experts in the Old Testament law. And all of these groups make up the Sanhedrin, which was the official seat of religious power among the Jews. And these are the men who are going to orchestrate the suffering and death of Jesus, though, of course, we know that God is in control of all of it, and that it won't be the final chapter, but that final chapter will occur on Easter Sunday when He rises again from the dead, conquering sin and death. And even that, in reality, is not the final chapter because He ascends to heaven and He will one day descend again. But that gospel message, and really verse 31, is a summary of the gospel message that Jesus has come, He is going to suffer, He is going to die, and He is going to rise again. That was unknown to them. So Peter makes this tremendous confession on behalf of the Twelve, but it is extremely shallow and inadequate. Sadly, very much like the confessions of many, not just in our culture, but many in our pews today who know the right words to say. They've been in churches long enough to know the phrases they are to repeat, but they don't know what they mean. And So as we've come to expect from Peter, he leaps into action. This is not the kind of Messiah that he expected. This is not what he has dreamed about. Frankly, this is not what he's given over a year of his life to following up until this point. And being the outgoing type A personality that he is, he is not going to stand for it. So he takes Jesus aside, doesn't want to offend him publicly in front of others. So he's gracious enough to take Jesus aside where he intends to rebuke him, for what he thinks is going to transpire in the future. That word rebuke is a powerful word, it's a strong word, it's the word we've seen throughout this gospel where Jesus rebukes the demons, and now Peter is rebuking Jesus. He intends to set him straight on what the future holds. And it's not just about Jesus, there are vast implications for what the future holds for them. And we'll see that next time. If Jesus is a suffering Messiah, if indeed He is the Messiah that He Himself lays out in this verse, what does that mean for those who follow Him? I'll give you a preview of next time. It means suffering. Jesus Himself said, if they persecuted Me, they will persecute you. If He has not come as a victorious and ruling King, at least not now... What does it mean for those who follow Him? It means that we must take up our cross and daily follow Him. But that's next time's sermon. You see now why Jesus told them to remain quiet, because they did not understand what kind of Messiah He was. Though Peter had given this tremendous confession that was completely correct, they had very misunderstandings about what kind of Messiah He was, and so they weren't ready to proclaim Him as Christ because their definition of Christ was seriously flawed. So Jesus responds with a rebuke of his own. And this rebuke is done publicly, because the disciples all shared in the thoughts of Peter. He was simply speaking on their behalf, echoing what the rest of the group believed. And so in rebuking Peter, he addresses him and refers to him as Satan. Can't get much harsher than that, can it? Peter was not Satan, of course. Jesus didn't mean that. He simply meant at this moment he was in the camp of Satan trying to to deter Jesus from his mission, attempting to steer him away from the cross, victory without suffering, which was exactly what Satan tried to do in the wilderness temptations. He offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to go through the cross. If you'll just bow down and worship me, you can have all of the kingdoms without all of that suffering. And that's what Peter is aiming for here as well. He is not thinking the thoughts of God. He is thinking the thoughts of man. Now, I mentioned to you last week that our own faith, we know by experience that our own faith rises and falls. There are times in our lives as followers of Christ that we are on mountaintops and we think we have the greatest of faith and we totally believe. There are other times that we examine our lives and we think, where is our faith at all? I really don't see a whole lot of evidence at all concerning my faith. So we know that there are highs and we know that there are lows, and we certainly see that here with Peter. I mean, we have just come from his great confession. You are the Christ And in response, Jesus says, Peter, that didn't come from you. God has revealed that to you. And I'm going to build my church upon that statement. And just a short while later, Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are not talking about the things of God. Talk about the highs and lows of faith? I'm not sure it gets any more extreme than that. The faith of the disciples has indeed evolved. Like that blind man we saw last week who began to see in a blurry fashion and then Jesus touched him again and then he began to see clearly. We're, we're seeing the beginnings of the opening of the eyes of, of the disciples. Their faith is growing, but it is not yet mature or complete. It has exploded in this confession from Peter that Jesus is indeed the Christ. And yet we are immediately reminded that it has a long way to go even as our own does. These two questions are vital to your faith and mine. Without correctly answering them, we will not have explosive faith. Indeed, we will not have biblical faith at all. Who is this man? The answer, he is the Christ. That is, he is the Messiah. Which simply leads to the second question. Well, what kind of Messiah is he? He is a suffering Messiah who dies and rises to pay our sin debt." Now those are the biblical answers, but right now I'm interested in your answer. Now in saying that, I do not mean to imply that you can believe whatever you want to believe and it still be correct. You can believe whatever you want to believe. You are entitled to your own opinion as long as you understand that that does not necessarily mean that it is correct. There is a right answer and there is a wrong answer, and I do not say that in order to be arrogant. I'm simply trying to make the point that when I ask you to personally answer these questions, who is this man and what kind of Messiah is he, all answers are not equal. The popular and trendy views of who Jesus is and what kind of Messiah he is, must surrender to the clear and consistent testimony of Scripture. He may not be the kind of Messiah you expected. He may not even be the kind of Messiah you want. But he is the kind of Messiah you need, and he is the only Messiah there is. Peter thought he had a better plan than God, taking Jesus aside and saying, Let me correct you just for a few moments, Jesus. This is not how it's going to happen. And don't we do that same things often? Thinking that our plan for our life is better than the plan that God might have. Or even when it comes to salvation, we follow the example of Peter. The Jesus I know, people will say. And when you hear them say that, don't listen to whatever they say after that. And if you find yourself saying that, try to stop yourself from saying anything else after that. Because when people start a sentence by saying, the Jesus I know, they are about to introduce some things that are not biblical and that accord to their own agenda and their own likes. They want a Jesus that aligns with their own expectations and their own lifestyle, and that is a Jesus that does not exist. There is only one Jesus. The one who is revealed to us in the Bible as a suffering Messiah who dies and rises for our salvation. And as we'll see next time when we close this chapter, that has serious implications for our discipleship. The kind of Messiah he is dictates the kind of disciples that we are supposed to be. But one thing that you and I cannot do, and that is we cannot remain a spectator, we cannot sit content on the sidelines. To be a disciple means that we must become a participant by faith, believing that Jesus is the suffering Messiah who died and rose for our sins, and because of that, we faithfully follow Him. Any other decision leaves you with no Christ and no salvation. Let's pray.